0: Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Kroger, fresh for everyone. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. One of my favorite things about football is, is that it kind of demonstrates just sort of natural success principles that... The thing that makes you successful in like say college football is also the kind of thing that can kind of translate to other areas of life there as well and one of the things that you notice is why is Georgia able to have the success that it's been able to have because Georgia seems able to do what other programs cannot do there's always going to be value in scarcity having a lot of what other people can't find enough of is always going to be a really valuable commodity. And being able to do what other people find hard, once again, there's a lot of value in that, that when you're not you know, competing in a very crowded lane, all of a sudden you kind of have a chance to have a little bit more outsized success come your way. You can sort of hoard more victories and more of the spoils of victory. And that is really what Georgia football is all about. Georgia has seemingly a lot of what other programs don't have enough of, and Georgia gets that talent because it's able to do what other programs just find really very hard. And a lot of times it's as simple as that. Like The actual truth shouldn't require an hour to explain that Georgia is just really good at getting more of something than the average program can get and the pathway by which they acquire that they're just more capable in that regard than the other programs are now what is this thing that i'm talking about well yesterday kirby smart made an appearance on you know josh Pate's the show from 24 7 sports he was with uh josh on there and kirby as he was kind of foreshadowing and looking ahead to spring practice in the middle of that discussion laid it out in no uncertain terms about what matters to Kirby during spring practice and what matters for Kirby all of the time. It is the thing that makes Georgia different than virtually every team that it competes with. It's only a small number of words, but it tells the entire story of everything that matters with Georgia football. This is Kirby from yesterday
1: depth depth at all positions like like can we create
0: offensive and defensive line depth so when i look across football the game's changing less big guys are playing there's less i mean every nfl scout that comes in here says we can't find offensive linemen we can't find offensive linemen well that's what we do here we recruit offensive linemen we get big guys and we develop them defensive linemen there's just less of them there's less big people so we want to establish depth at both those positions and we've got a lot of young guys in here at those two positions if you could understand and most of you do, but if you could really, we all, even if we think we understand it, like leaning more into that, if we could really ponder the value of that statement as, as as deeply and as necessary as it is, I just think we'd have a better understanding about Georgia football. I think we'd have a better understanding about college football overall, that the thing that actually matters most probably gets less attention than it should. And things that get more attention arguably do not matter as much sometimes as the attention they get. Kirby Smart was asked, hey, what's on your mind ahead of spring practice? He says depth, depth at all positions, but pretty quickly he pivots to more and better offensive and defensive linemen, making sure we have those guys in the program, making sure we're getting those guys ready to play, and making sure we're we're deploying those guys on college football Saturdays. That the secret to Georgia's success actually isn't much of a secret. It is having... a larger collection of capable, ready, offensive and defensive linemen than the other programs that Georgia's competing alongside of. That that is what separates Georgia. Kirby's saying, NFL scouts come to us, they say we can't find offensive linemen. Well, you can find them here at Georgia. And, y'all, we have been saying this, that when you look at, even compared to other like championship-level teams or even compared to what we think of as other SEC rivals to UGA, the way in which those teams are having to go deep into the transfer portal and pull – you know, starting offensive linemen from like FIU or wherever else, you know, Ohio State went to Oklahoma State, not exactly a power program uh, to find a starting offensive lineman. That 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 there is a certain level of desperation that other programs play with when it comes to finding offensive linemen. In a place like Georgia, that's not the case. And this also sort of circles back to what we've talked about the uh, you know the the last couple of days around here, which is, hey, in 2023, For whatever reason, seemingly, Georgia took a little bit of a step back on its defensive line. That in 2021, maybe the best defensive line of all time, at least among the the conversation. In 2022, dominant once again, Jalen Carter played a big role in all of that. In 2023, kind of a step back in terms of rush defense, not quite getting the quarterback, not quite producing tackles for loss. There was a little bit of a step back for the defensive line. We've been saying the last couple of days that we feel like is the biggest need for Georgia, over the course of uh, the spring practice and heading toward the start of the 2024 season is making sure you can kind of get that defensive line at UGA to sort of feeling like a Georgia defensive line once again. And when you hear Kirby Smart there in the short clip we just played, talk about the need for the as many good offensive and defensive linemen as you can get, I think that only reinforces the point we've been making the last couple of days here is that that is the position that matters. Uh, and, and that is the question that needs answering for Georgia as you head towards the start of the upcoming season. Now, let me do a couple of things with this kind of general topic here for a moment. Let me start with this. I think that if you're a Georgia fan and you kind of buy into this, boy, this really matters. You want to be great on those lines of scrimmage. You want to be far better than everybody else. You want to have a larger number of capable players on both sides of the ball. I think you have some reason to feel pretty good about Georgia starting the work towards making sure that's once again true for 2024 as we're kind of right here at the On set before spring practice begins, we're already hearing some buzz around a couple of Georgia offensive linemen, for instance. I saw it was kind of fun on a pro football focus the other day, and as we always kind of caveat, PFF is not everybody's cup of tea. I certainly understand that. But they were kind of ranking their top ten interior offensive linemen in college football. And you just heard Kirby Smart say, man, you got to have the best lines. you got to have the best offensive linemen, the best defensive linemen. NFL scouts say they can't find enough offensive linemen once again, Georgia would seem well positioned to have one of the very best, if not the very best, offensive line in the entire sport. I'll show you this. Tate Rattledge comes in, according to Pro Football Focus, as their number two interior offensive lineman for the upcoming season. Uh, They say that Rattledge, the top guard on the list, dominant pass blocking. They give you all the stats there on that. Uh, his excellence in pass protection extends back to 2022. His first year as a starter, he ranked fourth with his pass blocking grade, uh, and then uh, his, uh, and then in second in pass blocking grade and true uh, pass sets. Some of this stuff ends up being sort of gobbledygook to me. I don't understand all their stats, but the bottom line is they say Raleigh is our number two uh, interior offensive lineman in college football. We can all understand that, and that's a great building block for an offensive line that no longer has Marius Mims, no longer has Cedric Von Prime granger to start with, one of the very best guards, one of the very best interior offensive linemen in the sport, is a great way to put an elite offensive line together for the upcoming season, even if that includes some new faces and some new places when it comes to some of those other starting spots. But wait, that's not all, because it's not just Ratledge who's getting some love there from Pro Football Focus. How about the guy that we think could line up opposite him at the other guard spot? Dylan Fairchild also cracks the top 10 there as well. And what Pro Football Focus says here is that Georgia and Alabama are the only schools with multiple interior offensive linemen gracing this list. And says so while it's debatable which guard duo is better than the two, what's not arguable is that the best pass-blocking guard tandem resides in Athens. So there you go for Carson Beck going into his final season. We just gave you some fancy stat-type numbers for why Tate Routledge is so good. They give you another bunch of those for Dylan Fairchild there as well, one of the top interior offensive linemen in the sport. So if you want to start getting optimistic and excited about Georgia for the upcoming season, all the attention, of course, that Carson Beck's going to get and the discussion about who are his new playmakers. They need to replace Brock Bowers. All of that matters. But the fact that once again, it appears that Georgia is going to be lining up with an elite offensive line for Carson Beck to play behind, if you listen to Kirby Smart, you might be led to believe that might matter more than anything else. Which sort of brings me to the final point I want to make on this just for a moment. So I think that we're about to move into a little bit of a new era as it relates to NIL name, image likeness, the current way in which football players are being compensated. Now, we may see more changes coming to all this in the future, but for now, let's assume for a moment that all of this just sort of stays the way, at least formatically, that it kind of is right now. We have been in kind of the raise money phase. You know, how can money be, uh, uh, you know, uh, how can you, how you can you acquire donations? We've been kind of in that phase as it relates to NIL and different programs have had different levels of success. But I believe one way or another, whether you're one of the top NIL programs in terms of the money you can rake in or whether you're somewhere towards the middle, I believe we're about to move past the money acquisition phrase and we're going to talk a lot more about how money is allocated. In other words, at a certain point, you've kind of raised all the money you can raise and now it's going to be up to some decision maker given the way in which the NCAA has been treated in court recently the full charade may be down and coaches themselves may actually be able to have the full power on determining all of this, you know, without having to pretend like they're not affiliated with the NIL collectives and things like that. But one way or another, we're about to have a decision to be made of now that we've raised all the money we're capable of raising, how are we going to accolade that money? Uh, Allocate's the word I'm looking for. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth. How's that money going to be allocated? How's that money going to be sort of spread around and I think if you're Georgia, I think that's one of those things you ought to hear, think about that, you know, for all the attention of, well, how come Georgia can't get five-star wide receivers, for instance? That's a, that's a phrase we hear like. How come Georgia can't get five-star wide receivers? The truth is Georgia's scoring about 40 points per game, one of only two teams the last two years to score 40 points per game in each of the last two seasons, even without getting the so-called five-star wide receivers. Now, why is that? I would suggest one of the reasons why George has been able to maintain the consistency that it's shown on offense is because no matter who's lining up at wide receiver, they've been playing behind a great offensive line. That To put this in sort of simple terms, if you had your choice, I think you'd rather have good receivers playing with a great offensive line than the opposite, a great receiver who was playing with an offensive line that wasn't quite up to that same great standard. It may be the same thing at quarterback, too, where we believe that Carson Beck— is also a great quarterback, but you might be okay with good quarterback as long as that good quarterback is playing behind a great offensive line because to hear Kirby Smart say it and to hear the way that NFL draft scouts are saying it to him, it actually may be easier in the sort of offensive explosion that college football has been over the last 15 years or so, it actually may be easier to find a quarterback that looks great than it is to find an offensive line that looks great. And it may be easier to find wide receivers that look great compared to offensive lines that look great. That might actually be the more scarce thing. And so, therefore, if you're a Georgia booster or if you're you know Georgia from a strategic standpoint, where are you pumping your dollars in the future? I'd say lines of scrimmage are pretty important plays. Defensive line there, too. We've said this before. I've asked Jeff tell this question directly many times of – if defensive line, the very best linemen, are becoming the kind of thing that are commanding you know, big NIL dollars, what would the plan be for, for getting those players if you're not going to play the NIL game at the highest level? I mean, it's a fair question worth asking. But when you hear Kirby Smart saying what he's saying there about, hey, our offensive and defensive line depth, our ability to kind of bring great line of scrimmage players into this program and get them better while they're here, that's the thing that separates us from everybody else. I think in terms of how Georgia kind of positions itself for its NIL future, that's the thing that's got to matter there as well of maybe more so than other positions, making sure you stay great on the offensive and defensive lines, that may be the prime directive for Georgia as a program and every booster who wants to support Georgia as a program. Quarterbacks will get the attention, wide receivers generate the chatter. You know, some of the stuff, you know, uh uh Sometimes it's cornerbacks, whatever else, on you know defense that seem to get a lot of buzz during draft time. But nothing matters more than being great on the lines of scrimmage. Georgia's won two national championships, I would say, in large measure because of how good it was on its lines of scrimmage. And when you look to see how Georgia can be positioned for success in the future, being great on both your offensive and defensive line, I think you can pretty safely say that nothing may be more important than that. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. We're presented today by Kroger, and we are happy to have you with us. No matter how you get to us today, live on video across all platforms at 10 a.m. Radio, Athens Sports Radio, nine six three f podcast wherever you find them, including the world famous dognation.com We are just really happy to have you as a part of our program here today, and we are so thankful for our friends at Kroger who make it all possible. You know, one of the things I think about a lot is how many of the people that are, you know, companies that appear here with us on Dog Nation Daily have just been with us for years? I'm talking about just years and years and years, and Kroger is certainly one of those longtime friends of ours here. And I want to make you aware of something that Kroger also wants to do, because the reason why Kroger shows up on Dog Nation Daily each week is because they want to make you aware of some cool things they have going on for you uh, and ways you can save money, save time, things like that. And so how about this? As you're moving towards like a busy travel season, a lot of folks got spring break coming up. You know, my family, we've been talking about all the different travel things we're going to be doing over the course of the next few months. Was well, as you're thinking about your own travel, travel, going to see your kids play spring sports, things like that. You can save on fuel every time you shop at your local Kroger when you use your Kroger shopper's card. So make sure you use this. You can earn one fuel point for every dollar you spend. And you can redeem those fuel points at any Kroger fuel center today. So you're already buying your stuff at your local Kroger. Make sure you also use that to save yourself money at the uh, pump there as well with that uh, that Kroger shopper's card. So make sure you get that and find out more at your local Kroger here today for a lot more on that. All right, we're going to do some uh, Georgia recruiting talk here coming up in a moment with Jeff Sintel. That's going to be a lot of fun. Prior to that, I'm going to go around the doghouse. Around the doghouse today is poured by our friends at the finish, long drink, and it's been a busy week here around Dog Nation. Obviously, I've been here, kind of locked in our studio, the way that I always am. But we've had uh, Kaylee Manzel, Mike Griffith up in Indianapolis for the NFL scouting combine, and you know how, who's going to work out and who's going to do what. I think some of that's still to be determined, especially with Brock Bowers coming up, perhaps later on today. But the one thing we do know is is that we have heard plenty from former Georgia players at the Combine this week. and In fact, I was just talking a moment ago about my belief that defensive line is perhaps the biggest issue for Georgia ahead of the upcoming season. ESPN had talked the other day about, oh, no, we think it may be defensive secondary. Well, in light of some of the things we're hearing at NFL scouting Combine this week, I want to start here for a moment with Javon Bullard making a very emphatic statement, warning, if you will, to those who think, you know, kind of a year removed from winning a national championship, a couple of national championships that Georgia might be ready to take a step back, or perhaps this defensive secondary, no longer with the Bullard, no longer with the Kamari Laster, who we're from in a moment, no longer with the Tyke Smith, who we'll hear from in a moment. Uh, Javon Bullard not only believes that Georgia is set up to be as strong as ever, but that defensive secondary, even in light of some of these departures, also set up to be as strong as ever. This is great stuff from Javon. Georgia ain't going nowhere, man. Georgia ain't going nowhere. And uh, I, I stand by that, and I mean that. Joe's going to be around for a long, long time. And uh, that, defensive back room, uh, that defensive back room ain't going nowhere either. Those guys, those guys. You see, those guys were just, like you saw on Saturdays who would start. You don't see what those guys do at practice. And, you know, and the, the flashes that they make. I mean, you got so many guys in that room.
1: You got David Daniel, Dan Jackson, Jonell, Justin Rett, Jacory, like, Everybody in that, and that's not even the, the, the name, the corners, man. And, you know, you got so
0: many guys in that room that that can play elite level of football. And I'm excited for him. So when you hear Javon Bullard says what he says there, and I've always loved listening to Javon speak just because I think he has such an authenticity to his words. I just really like that. Uh, that when you hear that, um, I mean, if you had any concern about the Georgia secondary, wouldn't a lot of that concern be alleviated just because of what Bullard says he thinks he sees and the in the the you know the the guys that are left over in that Georgia secondary as as Javon gets ready to move on to the NFL draft. I just think those are really strong words from uh, Bullard overall, one of the more beloved players. Uh, from Georgia from this previous era, and speaking of beloved players, obviously perhaps nobody more so in recent years than Brock Bowers, who is really one of the more I think observed players in Indianapolis this week. There's a huge, maybe saw some of the photos, huge contingent around him in Indy this week when he spoke to reporters. Now Brock doesn't say very much of of note, which is uh, certainly his prerogative, but a lot of folks curious to ta- to hear from him just because he could be such a megawatt factor in the uh, first round coming up in just a few weeks. So we're going to kind of give you a little bit of a taste of what a lot of folks had to say. I thought that was great stuff from Javon Bullard a moment ago, touting Georgia, kind of staying on top, touting the Georgia defensive secondary. Also some really good stuff from Brock Bowers here there as well as he gets ready to transition to just really one of the most buzzed about draft prospects ahead of the upcoming NFL draft. Also Brock Bowers here from this week.
1: Um, I'd say being here. I mean, it's just kind of – you kind of think about it when you're growing up you watch it on tv and um it's just kind of cool being here and I just say that i mean people said to just take it in i've been trying to do that um no matter what it is whether i'm just sitting around waiting just uh know that uh i mean this is this is what i've been looking forward to pretty much my whole life and just wanting to move on to the next level so i mean that was it's, it's pretty cool Just looking around and seeing all this stuff yeah georgia helped me i mean a ton i mean obviously we, we were going against first-round dudes in defense every single day in practice. So uh, that like just that kind of development, uh, going against that kind of competition every day really kind of improved my game and helped me out.
0: There's something about seeing Bowers in that environment, wearing the sort of generic NFL shirt, talking about his NFL future, and some of the questions you get in a situation like that are like, from the NFL point of view, a lot of the people who are there are obviously NFL reporters, so they're asking NFL-related questions to Bowers, and – For someone like me, who obviously has, like all of you, just loved Brock in the Georgia uniform these last three years, the realization of, gosh, that's over. Like, Brock's not going to play for Georgia again. There's something about that that becomes very apparent during a press conference like that, even one in which, you know, Bowers not exactly giving the most exciting volatile quotes. Uh, It is certainly kind of the realization of, this is the transition. Bowers is leaving the college world to go to the NFL world, and we believe that he's going to be very well received once he gets there. You love him saying at the end of that clip there, how Georgia made him better while he was here. He was not the only one speaking that way uh, this week at Scouting Combine, Tyke Smith, who had a pretty interesting road to travel from West Virginia through his time at UGA, kind of a long winding road. He sort of echoed some of those same sentiments by also talking about specifically what it was about Georgia that made him a better football player while he's here. Here's Tyke Smith. So yeah, I think um, Georgia developed me mentally, just showing me all the stuff outside of football. I think I was a, a real good, a, a real good, real good football player once I transferred in. So them being able to show me like the mental uh, side of how to handle the meetings, the long meetings that we do, the walkthroughs, all the stuff outside of football, and then being able to handle yourself like a young man, and then uh, them helping me become the best version of myself. I just think that's a really uh, interesting statement from Tykee there, just because. Look, Tykee battled some injury, obviously, near the beginning of his Georgia career, but I think there's also some you know, chatter in the rumor mill, people who know somebody who knows somebody will know somebody who'll probably tell you that maybe Georgia wasn't quite so sure what it had in Tyke Smith when he first got here. Maybe, you know, just to be completely frank, maybe he wasn't running quite as fast as they expect their defense backs to run or, you know, things like that, that there may have been some, some concern at the early stages of – how good of a fit is Tyke Smith going to be at a place like Georgia? And sometimes the transfer portal kind of does that, where it's like this guy put up big, you know, production playing for his previous school, but you get him on campus somewhere, and all of a sudden he did not really feel like a great fit at a place like that. And that could have been the story for Tyke Smith, you know, kind of a round peg in a square hole at a place like Georgia. But after a long and winding road that included overcoming some injuries this past season, go look at statistical categories and look how impactful Tyke Smith was kind of all over the place when it comes to some key statistical categories for Georgia. That he really made himself into a player here at UGA after getting off to a slow start. And some of that is, as Tyke says, hey, Georgia made me better. But some of that's also about Tyke the man himself to say, you know what? Nothing was given to you here, and maybe there was some thought that you weren't going to be able to take it. And yet, eventually, you did find your spot. Eventually, you did take some playing time for yourself, and you made a real impact on the 2023 season. I think that Tyke deserves a lot of credit for that. And that's one of the reasons why the NFL draft is probably not my favorite thing overall. But one of the reasons I do enjoy it is because I do think a lot of times what you see come out of it is sort of that personal story of, hey, this is the man I became while I was playing in college. This is the player I became while I was playing in college. And certainly, Tyke Smith's got a lot to say when it comes to all of that. And someone else who always seemingly has a lot to say there as well is Georgia cornerback Kamari Laster, former cornerback now Kamari Laster. And he told a very funny story. A lot of you know that Kirby Smart has a way of trying to save his vocal cords and make it easy for everybody to hear him on the practice field. He uses a microphone to communicate during practice. The problem is, is that, you know, Kirby's Pretty candid during practice, and that microphone certainly amplifies uh, the things that Kirby Smart has to say. And a lot of players can tell you stories about times of being just absolutely berated and screamed at by Kirby with the use of the microphone during the practice field on the practice field. And I thought Kamari Laster told you some funny stuff about that this week here as well. Let me let you hear uh, Kamari here too as we're kind of going through some of the highlights of the NFL scouting combine. Here's Kamari Laster.
1: Favorite mic story about Coach Smart. Um, I just remember one time he was screaming on the mic so loud that after practice, uh, one of my friends back at the dorm said that he could hear him back over there around at, uh, at ECV. So yeah, he was just screaming in general at all of us. Just I guess we weren't just having one of our best days and uh, he let us hear it. Oh yeah, I, I got it. I got it a bunch. I mean, uh, but that's that's just what, you know, that's what helped me, you know, just him, just except me being able to accept the hard coaching and just hearing the hearing the message, not the tone. I mean, he's just that's just his way of showing his passion for the game and showing how much he just wants us to be able to, you know, just execute at a high level. First of all,
0: I love the line there at the end. You talk about wisdom. He says, when it comes to Kirby Smart and sort of the hard coaching that you're going to get the SEC level and that Kirby Smart's going to give you, he says, hear the message, not the tone. Is that not great? That's, that's like a really strong phrase from last day. Hear the message, not the tone. I think that's probably – Pretty good. Now, the other part is, and I admit I find this fascinating. Like, I don't live in Athens, but I am around Athens sometimes. And anybody who's around there, especially on campus, will tell you is that you can hear the sounds, of the practice field, like a long way away. And I'm always kind of fascinated. Like, Kirby Smart's like the most secretive guy in the world, and the practice stuff you know, they expect that to be like under like lock and key. And yet the actual words that Kirby Smart uses during practice, sometimes you can, you can hear it all the way across the, just depending on how sound might be traveling, a di- you know, particular day, you can sort of hear it all over the place. And, you know, there've been moments when people have tried to capture that. There was the famous thing before the Tennessee game or whatever. But it is kind of funny that Kamari's like, I've had people tell me they heard him talking all the way across campus, whatever that was, just because it can be really loud. Kirby's already pretty loud. You let him be amplified by a microphone, he's even louder. So uh, pretty funny stuff coming from uh, Kamari Laster and all that. And I would remind you that if you want the full conversation with Kamari and Taiki, Javon Bullard, Brock Bowers, uh, guys who – Zion Lowe, we played some of that for you yesterday. If you want sort of the full complement of a lot of the guys we've been hearing from – if you go to the Dog Nation YouTube page, you can just sort of take your time and on-demand, just kind of scroll through that and watch as much of that as you want to. And, of course, more coming from Dog Nation in Indianapolis today. We'll hear from Mike Griffith, Kaylee Manzel throughout the day as they kind of observe all of that going on. For now, though, that's around the doghouse. It's poured today by our friends at the Finish Long Drink. And, of course, we're heading towards a weekend. You know, listen, looking forward to kick back, relax maybe a little bit, and just sort of reflect on the week that was. No better way to do that than right there with the finished long drink. You know, I told you, a lot of times I like to drink the finished long drink outside. Just sort of a fun thing to do. This may be one of those weekends because it's kind of cold and rainy today. Maybe it's a garage day for you. Put a little sad country music on, sit in the garage, listen to it rain, enjoy yourself a finished long drink. That sounds pretty good to me. And here in the peach state, maybe no better option for you on that than a peach-flavored version of the Finnish long drink. Or maybe you want the long drink cranberry. Maybe you want the long drink strong, 8.5% alcohol by volume. Long drink zero, no carbs, no sugar. Long drink traditional. I'm sort of a traditionalist. Maybe Maybe no surprise that I like the traditional version of the Finnish long drink, the grapefruit flavor, the gin kick, whichever version you want. Just kind of a cool story of how it got to America from Finland in the 1950s after being a part of the uh, summer Games in Helsinki. It's been in Georgia now for a little while here. We've been telling you about it for a good number of years. And you can try some yourself. So please check them out online, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where to pick some up, and you can enjoy this delicious, great-tasting, sort of, uh, we think the best-tasting version in this category of ready-to-drink cocktails, mixed drinks that you don't have to mix yourself. We think the Finnish long drink's the best-tasting of them all. So you can find them online. It's uh, thelongdrink.com. That is the long drink. Com. All right, finished long drink brings around the dog doghouse to you here today. We are running a little bit late. That is on me, so we'll see if we can pick up the pace here a little bit. A lot of UGA recruiting news to get to. And by the way, also a little bit of a version of Jeff Sintel for our golden shoe later on today there as well. So we'll kind of tease ahead on all of that. But for now, what's next for Julian Lewis and another 2025 quarterback perhaps in the mix and potential changes to National Signing Day? A lot to get to. Let's cover all of that grounds. We welcome on Jeff Sintel here today on Dog Nation Daily presented by Kroger. From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. Let's say hello to Jeff Sintel here on Dog Nation Daily presented by Kroger. Uh, Jeff, sorry for getting to you a little late here because there's a lot of folks who want to hear a lot of really good recruiting information with you. I want to start with 2025 quarterbacks here for a moment and sort of work backwards and work our way more to the present tense. You know, the other day at dognation.com, a very interesting story as it relates to Julian Juju Lewis. He has kind of come out with another announcement, another crop of visits here that he's getting ready to take during the month of March. And, you know, the chatter that we see online and obviously your own personal private conversations is that it does seem like. Georgia is legitimately in the mix here, perhaps even more than just a hat on the table here for right now. Technically speaking, still committed to USC, I guess. He is visiting the Trojans, I believe, at the end of the month. But as we kind of talk about 2025 quarterbacks here for a moment, let me start with the Lewis part of this, that we're kind of led to believe that in very complicated recruitings that involve, we would assume, a lot of NIL and a lot of, you know, sort of aggressive sort of Suitors in addition to Georgia. That's not always Georgia's cup of tea, but perhaps is that different when it comes to Julian Lewis in this situation? Let's start right there, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Brandon, like the sweater. That's a very old school type letter sweater. Mm, thank you. Got you. Going on thank you. Um, you know, I think our Connor Riley had a good term for it. You know, t- Connor has a great cynical sense of humor sometimes, but he called it a situation ship how he described uh, his reading of how things are with USC and Juju Lewis. So he's going to take a bunch of visits, man. And he's going to take it. Those are all unofficial visits, I've been told. And then he's going to probably take some more visits, some official visits. I think the thing you're kicking at, Brent. I don't know if you saw the, saw the story this week. It was a Yahoo.com report, um, how they estimated that Juju made about $10 million over two years at Southern Cal. And of course, not all of that was collective. It was a, I I didn't, I wasn't familiar with this, but he had like a Wendy's deal. He had a Dr. Pepper deal by Caleb Williams, Caleb Williams, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, Caleb Williams. Yeah. And, And I guess the comparative statement there is like, is that the sort of things that's going to be there for Juju? Should he stick with his USA USC commitment? I don't know. I think USC learned a little bit. First of all, my first reaction to that story, if they were paying that much, But again, it's not them paying that much. It's being that big of a star and then drawing in the non-collective funds. I think my thinking on Julian in Georgia is if Georgia does win the race for Julian, his father has told me that, you know, they're not going to take the highest bid, the highest bid. They're not currently committed to the highest bid. And I think it's going to have to take the power, maybe peripheral brands in the state of Georgia It's not going to be the money coming in or the collective money coming in that I think would ultimately sway should Julian choose Georgia. I think it would be big national brands. And I've already exceeded my free plug with one national brand in this answer already. So I'll just stick to, you know, the big boys, you know, the great A's that are around the state of Georgia. And that's kind of what Stetson Bennett got a little bit of and Brock Bowers got a little bit of. But if you multiply that with a quarterback that's a Heisman Trophy candidate, I think you can get into some real money where it's not exhausting George's collective to allocate uh, that many dollars to QB1. I I think he's going to really look around. It's interesting how Colorado is now in the picture because they hired a former NFL coordinator and that's a lot of NFL experience. I really think Julian just wants to play ball. This is a very complicated time in his life. He knows he's going to get his money wherever he goes, but I think I think one thing that I believe will happen with Julian at the college level is that money he's going to let his father handle all that. Kind of be his advocate, his agent for a lot of that. All he wants to do is play ball and win. And I think the main reason George is in this thing and I really think they are in this thing, Brandon is because he knows he's going to win. And he told me point blank, he's like, George is going to have players like me, except they're like 100 pounds heavier and six, seven, six or seven inches taller. He wants to be surrounded by similar talents to go chase championships.
0: So let me try to be intellectually consistent here for a moment, which maybe not always the easiest thing for me to do. But um, I just spent about 10 minutes off the top of the show saying, Herbie Smart talks about offensive and defensive linemen. And then in the next phase of NIL, which I believe is going to be more like the allocation phase of, okay, you've raised all the dollars you can raise. How are you going to choose to spend them? Jeff, I believe if I had like, let's say it's $2 million, I could give Julian Lewis $2 million, or I could use $2 million to get the best offensive line for the quarterback that does eventually start for Georgia, I think I'm at the phase now where I think I'd rather have the elite offensive line than the elite quarterback. Georgia won two national championships with a quarterback who became a Heisman finalist, was only a second-round pick. and was not an elite recruit coming out of high school. And I'm not saying that I don't want elite quarterback, or I'm not saying that I don't want elite wide receiver. But the truth is, listen to Kirby Smart Talk, elite offensive lines may be more rare than elite quarterback wide receiver. And if everybody's chasing those skill positions with the dollars – then dadgum it, Jeff, maybe Georgia's just better off putting a whole bunch of money in the direction of the very best offensive line that it can get, letting somebody else battle it out for the quarterback, find a good quarterback to play behind a great offensive line and start stacking some more trophies.
1: Yeah, I'm going to ride with you a little bit on that one, Brandon. I think one of the things I'm watching, and it's been clear to me while watching the NFL Combine coverage, is Georgia only has one defensive lineman there. And to me, that's probably the reason why Georgia wasn't Georgia A year ago, Georgia was very good. Georgia was a top two, top three, top one team last year. But they weren't uh, the Georgias of the years past or those elite defensive linemen, those elite front guys. Georgia went through a stretch. We all know Trayvon Walker, uh, Jordan Davis, Jalen Carter, Devontae Wyatt. They didn't have exactly one of those dudes uh, on last year's team. Now, I think Nazir Stackhouse, Warren Brinson, those guys will come back. Uh, those guys will really help Georgia out a lot. And those guys will probably end up day three picks, maybe day two, day three picks. They'll be third, fourth round type type defensive linemen. Maybe a little higher for Nazir. But I think the difference is purely I, I think I've tried to be, like you said, uh, intellectually consistent. I'm trying to be rationally consistent. I have always, when I look at recruiting, I think big people that move people around, that push people around offensive and defensive lines, are very much still the nature of the game. You watch the NFL, Brandon, when it gets to the the playoffs, all those teams that threw it 30, 40 times a game, they start running the ball. And that's how they advance through the playoff bracket in the postseason in January. I still think that's football, no matter how much they try to change it into kind of underwear Olympics or glorified seven on seven with pass routes and how much you can literally lay your hands on receivers. I think i i think about this nil brandon in the, the days going forward and it reminds me of late 90s early 2000s as how frustrating it was to follow the atlanta braves because they just weren't spending or if they spent a lot of money on their pitching staff they had to go with a mediocre and average talent for the national league at first base or third base or they would have to plug with a lot of rookies and other school, other teams were spending a lot more. I think it is going to be in some respects a salary cap league. And I like the way you're thinking, it's a rational way to share that message in terms of if you're spending all your money on your quarterback, who's going to protect him? Like Georgia's got a model. Somehow they're winning. I think it's 69 and six since 2019. They're winning without first round quarterbacks, without first round receivers. They're winning with a Georgia model. And I don't think Kirby Smart really needs to change that. Uh, drastically, And I think the Julian piece is just very interesting because I think the hardest part of the whole Julian Lewis to Georgia saga storyline is I don't expect him to come in right away at Georgia and play. I, I have that much confidence in a Gunnar Stockton and a, I have that much confidence in a Ryan Puglisi. But the flip side of that is no freshman quarterback has really came in and played for Kirby Smart except for Jacob Eason and then Jake Fromm. Now, those were kind of dire situations where they didn't have four stars, five stars stacked up in the room as well. And I think Georgia's kind of way with their young quarterback is sending them through a year of the gauntlet scout team practices where that future all pro defense kind of chews on them. And then Kirby Smart and Mike Bobo know exactly what they have. And that's kind of the way been the way Georgia has groomed quarterbacks over the years. I think that's why Carson Beck's so successful. I think that's why Stetson Bennett was so successful. And I think that's going to be interesting to look at in the, in the, in the years to come. So, Going kind of rapid fire here for a little bit. You know, a guy that you've written about at dognation.com, Matt Zoller's four star.
0: He kind of reminds me of this year's version Ryan Buglisi a little bit. I think he has a chance to be an Elite 11 quarterback. He's sort of ranked inside the top 200, but he's not ranked inside, like, say, the top 50. And he's certainly not a five star here right now. Is this the kind of quarterback then that we're talking about? And I'm not anti Juju. I'm really, really not. Obviously, I'm not. But is someone like Zollers a little bit more in keeping with what we're saying here, which is if you can have the best offensive line good at quarterback might be good enough. Is that what Matt Zollers perhaps is going to end up being?
1: Well, it's funny, Brandon. There's been a bit of a newsflash with Zollers. Uh, I think uh, people have started to look at him. They started to kick the tires on that junior tape. and. Ironically, on three now has Zollers rated higher than Juju on their Mm. pure on three rating. Zollers, I believe, is the number seventeen overall prospect for on three, number two, number three quarterback in the country. Juju's like number twenty two, so that's that's interesting. I think Zollers has reached the point he's going to be Brandon. It's going to keep going up for him. He's going to be a top one top. He's already top eighty five on the on three industry ranking and climbing and this is a guy brandon i love this part of his story he was very forthright he didn't have an offer this time a year ago brandon that's very strange very peculiar in this day and age you see that highlight clip right there i had to watch it about two or three times he literally lets that ball go and the ball travels like 61 yards 62 yards in the air the thing about him is he's very he's a former receiver he's a former running back He is very, very fast. Like the first play on this tape is a 70 yard run where he makes a defensive end miss. So, Zoller's trying to keep with the speed of your pace of your questioning here. I think you're going to find out he's going to be as highly rated as anybody when all the rankings are done.
0: We just talked about offensive and defensive linemen a lot. We've also said over and over again this is an incredibly deep year for both offensive and defensive line. Here in the state of Georgia, you had a chance to visit with Josh Petty from Fellowship Christian the other day. Uh, how did you find Mr. Petty when you get a chance to speak to him?
1: Well, first of all, very impressive kid, very intelligent kid. But, Brent, I know I wanted to have fun with you on this question. He's got – you were talking about allocations, right? Yeah. He, he had a hip fracture uh, in the state file in wrestling. He's going to miss about six to eight weeks. But really his spring to-do list is he said he was down to 255 in wrestling season. And that's not good. That's not great for a future Georgia offensive lineman, for Coach Searles at least. And he's got a mission to get up to 285 by the time his senior season rolls around. To do so, he's going to ingest 350 to 400 grams of protein per day and up to 7,000 calories per day to stack on that weight. Brennan, that is a staggering number. It is a mathematician's number that's going to be accomplished through a lot of protein shakes. My question for you, sir, is how in the world are you getting that 400 grams of protein and 7,000 calories on a daily business? Like, what's your salary cap there? You you can't be on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship either.
0: You act like I won't get that done this weekend. Listen, you give me a big plate of wings here and some sides (laughs) to go along with that, a little barbecue for dinner. I mean, I (laughs) – What scares me about this is we hear these stories of, oh, so-and-so is going to do this insane diet in order to be able to pack on weight. When you start doing the math and I start kind of doing the sort of, you know, kind of looking back on my recent week of eating, you sort of realize I wish that was a little harder for me than it sounds like it is for, you know, a young man like this. Uh, Unfortunately, if he spent a little time with me, he may find out that packing on that kind of weight, I mean,
1: that's basically just a weekend's worth of work for me as it is. It's kind of like Brandon on the cruise ship, because he told me, uh, and I got to reiterate, 4.12 student, great kid, great young man, loves the fact that Georgia's recruiting him. He called it a very special part, very special recruiting process so far. But Brandon, he's going to have four protein shakes a day. That would kind of take some of the fun out of it a little bit. But he also said he has a breakfast, a lunch, a second lunch, and then a dinner. So he's eating two lunches, man, during the day. I was waiting for him to say, yeah, I've got a lunch after dinner. Or whatever, as well. But to and he said that last protein shake has got a major core of of uh, protein and calories and everything else to kind of tide him off over the over the, while he's sleeping, man. But man, I don't know, man. I, I sit there and I think about the protein shakes I have every day, man. And it'd take about ten of those, uh, or at least eight or nine of those, to get to that number for me. All right, two quick things here. Thing number
0: one, we need to normalize second lunch. I just feel like I feel like it's good for the economy. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like. I'm always hungry around like say 3 p.m. And it just seems so socially unacceptable to eat at three because you got dinner coming up in a couple of hours. I feel like we need to normalize second It kind of needs a name. You know, I grew up, people talk about supper, you know, maybe you could have supper and dinner or like dinner comes at like three supper comes at night. I, I feel like, I feel like we need to normalize second lunch. And the other thing is I'm no dietitian. People should consult their own experts, I guess. But this idea that you need protein shakes, milkshakes already have protein. They're made with ice cream. That's made with dairy. That's That's got protein in it. Like, you know, this notion of you have to have a special category of shakes. Milkshakes already have protein. So I, I got your problem solved right there.
1: Brennan, I don't think Metrics is coming in as a sponsor anytime soon for us. Oh, um, hey, this is a food story I got to ask you about. Did you see the one about the giant fast food, fast food service chain that wants surge pricing for their – For their menu, like an Uber, I mean that's diabolical, isn't that anti-American, my friend?
0: Well, I I think so, and I'll tell you my thought on this, which is if you go to these places, any kind of like regular fast food place. You know, this idea, well, it's cheaper at 3 p.m. But if you ever try to get service at a fast food restaurant like 3, 3.30 p.m., they don't care about you. They don't care about you being there. You know, the idea, well, the food's cheaper later on. It's also the same food that's been sitting in the warmer since 1130 in the morning. Like, uh, I found that to be pretty distasteful. And I don't, listen, I'm not going to you know, mention the, the place by name necessarily. Um, but, you know, this idea we're going to charge you more for the food at noon, that's like the only time all day long the food's fresh, you know. You know, three four o'clock is sort of a wasteland when it comes to a lot of these, you know, fast food joints. So, no, Jeff, I was not happy about hearing about that.
1: Awesome, man. Hey, side road there. We got lots of recruits to talk about. If you still want to go down. All
0: right, there. yeah. Real quickly here, uh, Isaiah Gibson, pass rusher out of the WR. Uh, I like this young man a lot, and it sounds like Dog Nation is going to find some stuff they can like about him there as well.
1: Yeah, let's, let's be nice to a sponsor here. It sounded like he he went to the UGA bookstore, Brandon, right before he went to the Under Armour camp. You roll out and you see him, and he's got Georgia slides. Brandon, do you even have Georgia slides? I doubt even you have Georgia slides, but he've got, uh, he's got a backpack. He had a Georgia hoodie, and he was a guy that really – he's very happy with the way Georgia's recruiting him. Georgia has moved him where his primary contact has gone from uh, – Coach Trey Scott is a defensive end guy to coach Uzo Deribe, which is a uh, traditional Wolfpack edge outside linebacker recruiting emphasis now. That's where the way Georgia sees him. Brendan, he had 17 sacks for the WR. The WR definitely plays a A1A type schedule. He had 51 quarterbacks' pressures. I love how that stat on the catapult had him at 18.6 miles per hour a year ago as a junior. And, you know, to tell you how Uzo Deribe gets down, uh, Isaiah was sharing a story at the Under Armour camp, and he was like, "Hey, man, I just got through talking to uh, Coach Daribe before I came out to this camp, and he's in Miami with his wife on vacation." And I'll tell you how Uzo Daribe works—he may be off the clock, but he's never stopped recruiting. And Gibson Brandon, I think, is interesting. A little context there is: Georgia's looking at a lot of res- lot, a lot of edge guys this year because the cycle allows it. They didn't get an edge guy last year, a true edge guy last year. They did in twenty twenty three. So they're going to get two or three this year. And there's a young man named Darren Akabron up in uh, New Jersey. Seems like he really likes Georgia. Georgia was his number one coming out of a visit. He's got two more visits scheduled to see the dogs. There's Jared Smith, there's Zion Grady, and then there's Isaiah Gibson. Gibson was the one of those three. Smith, Gibson, and uh, Grady were all there at the Under Armour camp. And the most buzz coming out of those three was Gibson. His rankings for on three vaulted all the way up to a top 25 overall prospect in the country, the number two edge in the country. He's got big frame. He's got big edge. Everybody loves those uh, homegrown Georgia talents right here. So that's a name that I think for me, Isaiah is moving up the board, not just because he flashed all that gear at the combine, because he really showed a great skill set. He wanted to compete. He wanted to knock out some reps when perhaps some others didn't. And Gibson, he said he wore that gear, Brandon, uh, basically because he wanted to show respect to the way Georgia has been recruiting him so far.
0: I love that. Something else I love, it had a really good story this week, Travis Smith, the receiver. And obviously, we talked to uh, Terrence Edwards about Travis yesterday. And, you know, it seems like he's really taken to James Coley very well, which is, I mean, not a surprise. James Coley's always been a good recruiter. That's why he's back at Georgia here right now. You know, Coley's pretty well known to a lot of our audience. Josh Crawford, not quite as well known, but gosh, we we just love the. the t- you mentioned, you know, Lee County, Coquit County, uh, uh, Valdosta. He's got you know deep ties down there. Give me a little bit of a thumbnail sketch on Coley, a little bit more well known. Crawford uh, needs a bit of an introduction, but how these guys are kind of already relating to recruits and the impact they could have right away on UGA recruiting.
1: Yeah, I think the way to look at them is kind of look at the jobs ahead of them because everybody's going to judge Josh Crawford, man, against Dell. And that standard that Dell set up is pretty amazing. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, Dell had been cooking for over a year, year plus for both Alvin Henderson out of Alabama and then a Kylan Deer out of Mississippi. And Deer has been, Dell's kind of one of his, his main target for over a year, daily Bible verses and everything else. I think it's going to be very hard for for Josh to get back in hard with the elite talents in the 2025 class for a lot of reasons. Georgia's running back room is supposed to return a lot of guys. You see some of those guys there, Andrew Paul, Roderick Robinson, but then they signed the three guys in 2025. You add in Bo Walker, who still seems very committed to the dogs. And that no, that room is going to be pretty hard to fill with another elite name in 2025. That's why I think Josh's best – You know, attaboy or, you know, fireworks, uh, big boom recruiting might have to happen in 2026 in state. But and then you look at Coley. Coley's going to be a great recruiter. He's going to open up pockets of South Florida and now Texas. And he's going to get Georgia in the top three and top four with a lot of really strong, talented players. But I think there's a ceiling there in terms of the top five guys. They're going to wind up NIL players. And that's going to be very hard for Georgia. We talked about salary cap allocation before. Uh, we try to really quickly phrase it that way. Maybe that's not the most uh, precise or tidy way to do it. But I think that's a modern reality of it. And I think it's going to be hard for Coley to to get that George Pickens type uh, in the years to come. But I think he can do very well. I think this year is probably the year where Terrence Edwards will be beaming uh, at the thought of potentially Georgia adding C.J. Wiley and Travis Smith, Jr., two of his proteges to the class. And, Brandon, it just makes sense there because they're not that highly rated. I think they're a little bit undervalued. They want to stay home. They've already built relationships in Georgia. And I think that's going to help Georgia with those players in terms of – and let's face it, Georgia has, has made a lot of hay, scored a lot of touchdowns without that elite receiver coming out of high school over this surge for the Kirby era. So I think that's going to be a good thing. And I want to tell you, Brandon, one player that everyone should be impressed with is Wiley. Uh, He's 6'4", he's 196, he's running track. He's going to get that 100 under uh, 11 seconds, which is kind of like a golden barrier. But you look at that tape, Brandon, you and I both know that Milton High School does not play any Kool-Aid teams. They get after it. They have a challenging schedule. And he just ripped through some teams last year, Brandon. He was stacking up through the last half of the season, Stacking up 170 yard games, 200 yard games, 80 in the 90 yard games, 150 yard games, week after week after week, ends up with 14 touchdowns, ends up with 1,470 yards on 68 catches. And he has a variety of route tree uh, examples, but there's a lot of plays on his tape, Brandon, a lot of plays where that young man is going deep. Uh, Luke Nicholas chucking yeah. it. And there are a lot of big 40, 50 yard explosives and he's catching the ball and running the green grass.
0: Well, I was gonna say that, you know, Luke Nichols, a quarterback that's going to Miami, he's been committed to Miami for, you know, a, a good long time. Um, kind of under the radar as a player a little bit, but he's a good quarterback. And for a guy like Wiley, DeBron Gatling would have been like this too. For a guy like Wiley to play with like that level of quarterback, you know, not the most famous quarterback in America, but if you watch Milton play, you're seeing a good, capable quarterback who's delivering the football and throwing a catchable, wall, uh, catchable ball. I just think for someone like Wiley, that really aids his development because he's playing with a capable signal caller. Not the most famous quarterback in America, not the kind of guy that's going to be in this sort of Julian Lewis conversation necessarily, but he is dadgum good. And um, I just think that really helps with Wiley's development Uh, and and anybody like that. If you're playing with that sort of, you know, power five or power four, I guess now power, you know, power conference level quarterback. You're just getting a chance to catch more balls and getting a chance to sort of play a traditional true receiver. And I I like Wiley more because, as you said, of the competition that Milton plays and the offense that he gets a chance to play a, a part of there with Ben Reeves.
1: Man, there's a lot more juice on wiley his dad played at lsu his mom was a track athlete at lsu and his dad goes on and plays with like four or five teams in the nfl so he's got that kind of pedigree got that kind of background and the fact that he's running track brandon he doesn't mind blocking he doesn't mind getting physical i mean there's a lot of boxes we all we all know there's a georgia guy that we have kind of developed and kind of shared the template on him but when mm-hmm. you can have nfl bloodlines. And you can have uh, track background at receiver. You can have size. You don't mind blocking to get the rock. But the other thing bro, they're branding with Wiley, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but his former high school teammate was uh, Ethan Barbour at Alpharetta. He moved from Alpharetta to Milton, and those two guys grew up together. Barbour actually gave Wiley his nickname, which is – you can't be a – great player these days man without a great nickname. Sure. And they they call him C4 cuz obviously CJ Char- Wiley but he wears number 4 for Milton and C4 is obviously explosive. We see that in movies all the time. Yeah. But uh that's a guy. Georgia I think Georgia fans could be very gleefully happy if that if that first year Coley class includes a guy like a CJ Wiley and a Travis Smith and then maybe one or two other choice names from there. All
0: right, we're obnoxiously late, but I do want to ask you about this and I think our audience needs to try to understand all of this. It seems like we're heading for more change with National Signing Day. I'd be in favor of change. I've told you a million times I do not like Signing Day on like December the 21st. Which I think that's the probably the worst single time it could uh, happen. However, when you hear about the discussion of change, what you realize is the proposed changes for various reasons might not be much better. We've heard about the idea of the early part of December, which would right there be, you know, Conference Championship Weekend, which for now would seem to be a pretty strange place to have it. We're hearing about late June, on the one hand, that seems to make some sense to add a signing period there because guys take their official visits in June. Coaches could sign them and then have a little bit of July vacation time, which I know for coaches, let's just be honest, you can't work three six five days a year. July's but the only time you can take vacation. And yet the high school coaches, and I am very sympathetic to this, are saying, "Well, gosh, if you have a bunch of guys, you know, you know, looking to sign around that time, you're gonna have more opt outs, more guys like skipping their senior season because their college decision's already made." I take that pretty seriously, and I do not think that would be a positive change you know, for the sport overall, for the young men who play the sport. What do you make, Jeff, of like where all of this is heading? I think this is a pretty serious topic. It's early days, but man, it feels like this is one of those things we're going to be talking a lot about one way or another.
1: Yeah, it's kind of convoluted, Brandon. It's kind of like a confluence of factors. First of all, I'm going to have a radical thought here. I don't even know if the February... Signing date even matters anymore. Why not at that point we have them sign in May because you're not going to early enrollee and they're already thinking about you being a year away. I think that's an antiquated uh, number right there, antiquated date on the calendar. The other thing, Brandon, is you mentioned a couple of those things, but like it, there's just there's just barriers, there's just impediments in any way you want to look at it. Check this. So like if you you try to do it after the conference championship week, Brandon, you mentioned high school programs and high school coaches. That's in the thick of the Georgia High School State Playoffs or any I. Any state association state playoffs, that's not really a good time. The reason why December is so bad now is you've got transfer portal spots you're thinking about and also early signing day, early enrollee guys you're thinking about. Not to mention the advent of the 12-team playoff coming here when everybody's going to sit there and try to win football games, multiple football games in a playoff bracket, in a championship bracket in December. December's a wasteland. I think they should get to somewhere like late July, maybe, you know, because everybody's still – visiting in June and they're deciding in July. So late to, late July, let them sign. And I think that kind of creates a lot of, that kind of moves a lot of the kind of traffic, recruiting traffic off to the side. I was looking at this, um, I was looking at this when this story was kind of breaking and I looked at George's class and where it, where it wound up and how many of those guys would have signed uh, in July. And probably about 20, 22 of those guys would have signed in July. Of course, it complicates things. The one thing that you ha- that haven't heard reported or mentioned in any of these stories is you got to give these young men an out clause because I just laid out that most of Georgia's class would have signed in July had this ruling or this model been in effect back then. Think about that. Dylan Riola would have signed with Georgia, uh, and then that would have gotten gotten a little twisted down down towards the end. I think you got to give these kids if you're signing in june or july whatever arbitrary date you're looking for you got to give them a way out with a coordinator change a head coach change or any sort of season change and there's really not a good time in, anymore in december to do it like it's just that's just kind of what it is You've, i've heard some thoughts from people that i respect that said you know just wait until after january the 15th and have them sign after the after the period we you know where you you could sign sometime in the summer <laughs> you would have two signing dates you would get rid of the early guys and then the ones that wanted to wait good wait, and it would be after a transfer portal it would be after playoffs it would be after a lot of things after the high school season and it would be close enough that that February date where people are kind of already know what they want to do by then I think they've got a lot of things to think about here's what I'm going to predict Brandon they're not going to make it completely better they're just going to make it incrementally better with what they're trying to do and a lot of young men now with the collectives and the NIL Brandon they've kind of figured out what they're doing anyway. So they don't mind signing something else in the month of July. All right, Jeff, really good stuff. Appreciate you being here as part of dog
0: nation daily presented by Kroger. We know you'll have a lot of great stuff coming here at DogNation.com. Hope you enjoy the weekend there too. And we'll look forward to talking to you back here on dog nation daily presented by Kroger again next week there as well. And stay tuned, by the way, uh, Jeff's and tell a big part of our uh, golden shoe today there as well. So Jeff, I'll go do a little bit of a tease ahead there on
1: that. Wow. Good job, man. Hey, God, uh, Keep going, man. I think you got 300 more grams of protein to go today, right? Yes, sir.
0: You know, we'll get there before it's all said and done. Appreciate
1: it, Jeff. Talk to you soon. Let's take a look around the
0: rest of the league. This is SEC Fruit. Yeah, like second lunch, I'd be all about that. A milkshake as my beverage for every meal. Absolutely. Especially especially for a good cause. Hey, I'm trying to to help my body be what it needs to be to play college football. How great would that be? Gosh, I'm so envious of that. So envious of that. I'd be, if I was a college football player, probably no surprise, I'd be the one on the bad list of so-and-so needs to drop weight. (laughs) That'd be the one that I'd be on, uh, unfortunately. So, yeah, uh, pretty pretty good stuff there on all of that. What's not good is the proposed changes potentially coming to the college football playoff before you even get the expanded playoff. I'm going to get to that here in a moment. But, But prior to that, let's always start with good news ahead of bad news. And some great news is cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean and the excitement that it's being generated. Behind the scenes now, we're having like meetings all the time. Now, I hate meetings, to be completely frank, but I love meetings about our Dog Nation cruise coming up and really now just a few weeks. It's April. I was telling this to my, my boss um, the other day that you know, we talk about the Dog Nation cruise for an entire year, so it sort of always seems like it's a year away, but folks, it ain't. It is here and it's upon us. We're just a um, just a few weeks away from April 22nd, sailing out of Port Canaveral. And I always love Port Canaveral as our destination to sort of Im- sort of embarkation destination, if you will, uh, just because it's an easy port to get to. That's why we always select Port Canaveral, just kind of a short drive, sort of past Orlando. You're kind of down there at uh, Port Canaveral. It's the easiest port, I think, for us to uh, kind of get to uh, in most cases. So that's kind of always sort of the home port for our Dog Nation cruise. We're on a lure of the seas. I've had so much fun the last couple of days. For those of you who watch on video, showing you some of the images, I mean, how just like stately and pristine does that vessel look sailing on the ocean there? Allure lure of the seas. What a gorgeous ship that is. And how much fun are the pool decks there, kind of overlooking the Central Park neighborhood? Y'all, this is going to be uh, an, uh, a cruise vacation experience unlike any we've ever had. How about the Aqua Theater there on the back of the ship? See, that's what a lot of people maybe don't realize. If you've been on our Dog Nation cruise before, hundreds of you have, and um, plenty more are going to be on their first Dog Nation cruise here right now. It's, it's all the new stuff we get a chance to be a part of because on an Oasis-class ship, that means the Aqua Theater. That means the two flow riders there on the back. That means the boardwalk neighborhood, which you can kind of see with the carousel and the experience there. That means the Central Park neighborhood. And uh, you see the mini golf and just all the fun things that you're able to do. I, I just love it. I can't wait to be on board with you. And if somehow you've kind of missed your opportunity to be on the Dog Nation cruise, Trust me when I tell you that Royal Caribbean's got so many fun things happening here in 2024, including another Oasis-class ship, Utopia of the Seas, debuting right there in Port Canaveral coming up in July. So Jessica Slater can tell you all about it. Give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater, at dreamvacations.com, and check out royaldogs.com the website if you want more information about our dog nation crew so let's talk about some pretty big news around the uh, world of college football we have been telling you now for days that despite the fact we haven't even gotten to the 12 team playoff yet there's already a lot of energy for an expansion to 14 after these couple of years in which the 12 team playoff is going to be set and the sort of weird news that we had a chance to react to the other day was that it would be kind of a sort of allocated, No, it's we've used that word a lot on the show today, but a lot of uh, spots in the playoffs sort of allocated to the various conferences. And the SEC and the Big Ten originally wanted four, but they were willing to settle for three, which means there would be two playoff opportunities for both the ACC and the Big 12, one for the group of five, and then we're gonna have three total at-larges. That is news we've already brought you here this week, a lot of this coming from Ross Dellinger. Well, Ross Dellinger's back out again today, or I should say yesterday, reporting on something else that's even stranger so what ross put out on twitter yesterday was or x i need to call it in the most circulated version of the proposed 14 playoff model when i was just describing the champions of the sec and big 10 would be guaranteed the two first round buys the sources tell yahoo sports so what basically you're doing here is in addition to sort of guaranteeing them more spots, they're also sort of being guaranteed buys, uh, you know, advancing in the playoffs, essentially. Like this is being thought of as a huge attempt to sort of stack the deck in favor of the SEC and the Big Ten. Now, there are plenty of people who are going to say all of this is just sort of a first salvo in a negotiation where perhaps the SEC and the Big Ten, figuratively speaking, take their ball and go home. They decide to sort of create their own playoff or something like that. They don't want to play with the lesser leagues. And perhaps that's where all this is going. But let me tell you the thought that comes to mind for me. And I I do think this is the type of thing that it sounds so blowhardish to say you're only going to hear this here. But I do believe that there is a viewpoint we've tried to express on this that you're not hearing enough other places. And I would say it's one of the reasons why the college football conversation ends up being so frustrating. Look, the truth is just really, really important. And for a long time, I think that college football, the powers that be over the sport, whoever they might be in a given year, have tried to push you on a lie and get you to believe something that just simply wasn't true. And the thing that college football has wanted you to believe is that somehow the playing field, nationally speaking, was relatively even and equal. Now, there is a reason why the sport wanted to push this. This year's most recent years college football playoff is the perfect example why the cfp ratings this year were through the roof america clearly responds to a pacific northwest team and a southwest team and a southeast team and a midwest team sort of four quadrants of the country all being represented that's clearly good for business it is totally understandable why college football would want to have it appear that the country's somewhat balanced and all the regions all the time zones they're all capable of producing great college football teams. Clearly, America responds in a positive way when that's the belief that seems to have some evidence to back it up. But largely speaking, for a very long time, that's simply not been true, that the sport isn't even and it isn't equal, and a huge number of the very best teams in any given year are going to be right here in the Southeast. We know that. We understand that, right? And the reason why that's the case is because the very best players, broadly speaking, also exist in larger numbers down here in the Southeast. And I think one of the things that's super frustrating is if we would have said in the past, and we probably did, that the second best SEC team typically deserves to be in the playoff more so than the best team from one of these ACC, Big 12, Pac-12 type of leagues, There are a lot of years in which we would have just been laughed out of the room. Oh, you're an SEC homer. You're a redneck. That's kind of the way you were treated if you sort of viewed this sort of southeast supremacy in college football. But now the official position of the people trying to put the next iteration of the playoff together essentially sort of code that into the format that, of course, the SEC is better. Big Ten is becoming more like that. Of course, they need to be treated differently. We've been saying forever the SEC should be treated differently because it has the best teams. And for the most part, that was a non-starter as a discussion because college football wanted to pretend that the sport was more balanced than it really was. And any time you're sort of building your entire edifice on a lie, eventually the chickens are going to kind of come home to roost. And perhaps that's what's happening here right now. And I want to say one final point about this when it comes to the imbalance of the future college football playoff and the special treatment that the Big Ten and the SEC might get. Some of the – we're just going to stick with the SEC here for a moment. Some of the special advantage that the SEC has seemed to enjoy, some of this is probably just luck, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it just so happens that better players live down here in the South, and that is objectively true. Recruiting rankings, NFL draft, all the ways in which players are evaluated – always kind of points back to that it's inarguable that the better players live down here it is in some respects just sort of luck that the sec has that advantage also the fact that you know some power programs like oklahoma state can't do anything about the fact that it's in stillwater oklahoma that's a little bit of a backwater outpost texas tech can't do anything about the fact that it's in lubbock way out there in the middle of west texas far removed from a lot of other places geographic location, if you're kind of a small sort of remote place, you can't do anything about that. That's certainly true. But the reason why this whole thing is frustrating for me is this point here, is that the advantage the SEC has enjoyed because of its geography, there are other programs who could have enjoyed a similar advantage, but for a long time, they just haven't tried hard enough. Miami and the ACC, Florida State in the ACC, Clemson they have won a couple of championships so you might exclude them from the, exclude them from this discussion. North Carolina from the SC, from the ACC. Texas from the old Big 12, USC from the Pac-12. Think about all the times over the course of the last 10, 15, 20 years, you've seen these programs that have some geographic proximity to elite talent. But you look at the institutions, you look at the athletic departments and you see sort of a at times what I would describe as sort of a half-hearted effort or an effort that's more interested in other things other than being as good at football as they can possibly be. And when they were happy to take the checks but not always willing to make the same commitment to excellence the SEC made, all of a sudden now when you look at the problems facing college football and the fact that it's almost untenable for the SEC and portions of the Big Ten to compete with these other leagues because it's so obvious these other leagues are inferior – the reason why some of the, the gap exists and the inferiority exists between certain leagues and the, and, and the top leagues, uh, the Premier League overall, the SEC, it's because programs that could have done better were content not to. They were lazy in some respects, or they were interested in peripheral issues. I mean, USC and the Pac-12, they would have canceled football for three years in 2020. They'd been more than happy to, to not play again for another half decade, it seems. Um, and when you try to f- explain, well, how do we get here? where there is such an imbalance to the point where you can't even agree on a playoff format because these conferences are so different. The fact that programs within some of these leagues that could have tried harder and could have done better, they just didn't. They were just content to, to, to reap the financial benefits that were coming their way without making a very significant contribution to all of that. Now, I'd say that's created kind of a mess for us right now, which there is no easy solution for. If the SEC and the Big Ten ends up breaking away and kind of doing their own thing, or if everybody ends up breaking away, and doing their own thing. The lazy athletic departments at certain places that allowed themselves to just take football less seriously than the SEC did, that is going to be, I believe, a big reason why, and I think more attention needs to be paid to the failings of certain athletic departments in keeping pace with what the SEC was willing to do will make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And as we wrap up here today... I told you I wanted to give a little love to Jeff Centel, And if you watch Before the Edge is presented by Kroger, you see this. So Jeff made this when he's in the first grade. I've been meaning to show this in the show for a while and just haven't been able to. So it's like one of those like art projects you kind of do when you're in school and you take the triangles, you sort of glue them on there. And I, well, we'll show you kind of an up close version of this on the uh, screen here in a moment too. But um, it's uh, Lindsey Scott and it's Herschel Walker and it's Buck Ballew. Jeff making this when he was in the first grade and... Writing his name, Jeffrey. In fact, we have the golden shoe uh, graphic. We'll kind of zoom in for people on this. You can see the signature there for Lindsey Scott, Herschel Walker, Buck Belue. Jeff was telling me the story about how this came together, that his first grade teacher, who was a big supporter of UGA, after Jeff had made the art project in the first grade, got the real signatures of all these guys. What an amazing thing that is. If you see before the hedges, you've seen that before. But wanted to give uh, Jeff a golden shoe for just one of the coolest things I've ever seen. A... Cool because of it's really a kind of a fun art project here. Neat to see Jeff signing his name, Jeffrey, as a first grader. And how about the teacher who, and how many of us have these great stories of wonderful teachers in our lives, and maybe no better example than this, takes Jeff's artwork, gets it signed by Lindsey Scott, Herschel Walker, and uh, Buck Ballew. That's really, really cool stuff. That's in our studio, and Jeff puts that as a part of uh, Before the Hedges each week. So I wanted to give Jeff a little love as a part of a uh, golden shoe here today, and we hope you all have a, oh, a Gator Hater updater, too. I'm so happy about this. I almost forgot the most important part. We got to make fun of those lousy, stinking Gators. 1,210 days. That's how long it's been since they have beaten Georgia. That is always good news. And with that, we'll send you to your weekend. Dog Nation Daily, presented by Kroger. We'll see you Monday, everybody.